If you want to use the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 944 where you'll find our reading in Romans 8, 18 through 25. We have been in this section for some weeks, and this morning is going to be more of an application of this whole idea of the renewal of the creation. What does that mean for us in our daily lives? Uh, Thus the title, Make God Known in Everyday Life. And we're going to trace through creation, our falling into sin, redemption, and this final restoration to see how all along God's Project or God's command, God's goal was to have a renewed earth of perfect beings bringing glory to him in everything they do. But it took quite a while to get there. It's going to take quite a while to get there uh, until the final restoration. So bearing that in mind, here we have the kind of apex of all of the Bible housed here in these verses. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You'll see the four parts of uh, the sermon in the outline there. And in each case, I have the cultural project mentioned. And you've perhaps heard before the phrase, the cultural mandate. Uh, summarizing what Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says. And so I've just changed this word to give it a little more uh, daily feel for us that this is your project and my project that we are to do not only now, but through eternity in the new creation. And I have found in the past uh, several years, for people who come from other Uh, denominations, other branches of the faith, and have sat in our ministry for some years, uh, most recently in Fort Worth, 
The thing that they have told me more than anything else that has changed their life has been teaching about the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. And they said, because it wasn't until then that I realized the significance of what I do every day in my life. Because they realized we will be doing something like that from now on in a renewed earth. Whoa, everything I do has a continuity with what's coming after. I would, I've said several times to my congregations, you know, in terms of significance, everybody's job has the same significance. My job is not more holy than your job. My job is not more significant. I just have a different calling. And scripture in 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of everybody's work as a calling from God. But my job is going to end. <laughs> there won't be any preachers in the new heavens and earth. But there are going to be a lot of other things in the new heavens and the new earth. So whose job is more significant? Whose job lasts longer? Who knows, huh? Certainly not mine. I don't know what I'll be doing, but I won't be doing this. <laughs> so we begin in Genesis chapter 1, where God commissions the cultural project. You're familiar, many of you, with these words. But this comes at the apex of the whole of creation and shows that this, the creation is, has come to this point so that these made in his image, the image of the one who built all of this, now will reflect him and manifest him in, their, in the creation. He who built it, the ruler who built it, now gives it to these beings to rule it for his glory. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Psalm 8, of course, that we read uh, at the beginning of the service echoes this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You get the idea of the Hebrew that, that, that repetition underscores the importance of something? Image, likeness, image, likeness, like beating on a desk. Do you see how important this is? These beings are in the image of God. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right off the bat, animal husbandry is mentioned in this text. And then in chapter two, we're told that agriculture is begun because God planted a garden and he tells the man to work the garden and to guard the garden. In fact, God launched the agricultural project because he planted the garden and hands it over to man, uh, to human beings to care for that. Genesis 1 is framed as God planning and orderly constructing the universe. Interestingly, in Job 38, 4 through 7, when God is challenging Job, where were you when I made the world? He uses the very uh, 
description of building a building, building a house. He said, well, where were you when I laid the foundations? Where were you when I was measuring the lines? Where were you when I sunk in the base for this building of the world? We're in his image and we begin our project of building after his project of building the world. He names in the first three days. We name in chapter two, God lets mankind take over this rule and name the animals. It's interesting in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it uses three words for God to build the world, to make the world. Uh, Understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. Then in chapter 24 in Proverbs, verses 3 and 4, it speaks about a man building a house. Guess what? Same three words, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. So we're in his image, imaging the God who creates all things as we recreate in this world. When the Holy Spirit is given to Bezalel in chapter 31 of Exodus, it said that it's the same spirit that was hovering over the waters, right? The same three words are used to describe what Bezalel is able to do in all the beautiful things that are going to be made for the tabernacle. So this is a model for all creativity, all ability to make or build or create anything in this world. It all comes from God. And we reflect his image in this. It's interesting that the pharaohs and the Mesopotamian kings all viewed themselves as the image of God on earth. The king was the image of God, manifesting the presence of the gods, not the, there was multiple gods, on the earth. So the king was ruler over the law, uh, agriculture, building projects, the arts. He was the patron of the arts. And he managed the whole of the city. And in this, it was seen that he was manifesting the presence of God, the rule of God on earth. Well, in steps into this situation, steps Genesis 1 and 2, where it's not the gods and the king and people under the king, but now it is the one God, all people and the non-human earth. All people are in the image of God. All people manifest God's presence and mediate God's presence to this world. All people are royalty. All people are kings and queens to rule in each person's sphere of influence, whether personal or family or community or larger. In every way, we are manifesting the image of God in this world. Another picture in the old, uh, that the New Testament, I mean, the Old Testament is playing against is that statues were used constantly, of course, to represent the gods. And they were placed in temples, they were placed all around to keep reminding people or really to manifest the presence of God in the world. Of course, they're mocked, rightly so, by the prophets as being dead and lifeless. They can do nothing. They can't speak. They, th- these are 
pointless creations of man. With one piece of wood, you throw it in the fire, and the other piece, you make an idol and you bow down to it, right? Full ridicule. But instead of a statue of wood or metal or stone, God has created us in his image to represent him throughout the whole earth. Living beings that have power and wisdom. And as we exercise that power and creativity and wisdom, creating culture as God has commanded us to do, except for what sin plays in it, we are like, as, as Middleton, a, a man I've really benefited from in his, his book uh, on this subject, New Heaven and New Earth, he says we're like a prism and God's glory breaks through us and its rainbow colors flash out in all the many things that we do. Now, that's a different picture of your work, that you're one of the bright prisms of God's glory manifesting itself in whatever you're doing. It's hard for us to think that way, that we are a part of, of manifesting God's glory, that we are, and I like the word, mediating God's presence in this world because we are made in his image. So our God is one who plans and who creates, who builds, who has an eye for shape and symmetry, for color, shading, detail, harmony. He organizes and structures massive and intricate ecosystems. He integrates them. He maintains them. He planned and built the human body's interlocking systems that are complex beyond comprehension. He's not only an engineer and builder, he's a repairman. I use the word man loosely there. For example, there's a bewildering whir of repairs being carried out in organism, including humans, all over the world. And he's even a janitor with an elaborate system for waste disposal and cleanup within an organism and outside of an organism. That's who God is. That's what he does. And so when you are figuring out a solution to a problem in any field, this is a God-like thing to do. It's a holy thing to do. It is a right thing to do. Studying ways to accomplish your work more efficiently and productively is a good and holy thing. Writing a good report is a holy thing. Giving a good presentation can be an act of obedience. Fixing a good meal, cleaning a bathtub, putting in a row of azaleas, studying history, repairing a water main, a microscope, or a jet. Everything we do is in imitation of the God who communicates, who creates, who makes and maintains, repairs, and cleans. So it really doesn't matter what your work is, from yard work, assembly line work, professional work, public work, homework. If it's lawful work, then you must see it as your calling and see his pleasure in your work. Many of you can recall, some of you were not near born at, at that point, but in Chariots of Fire, when Eric Liddell's or Little's sister was concerned about his running and training for the Olympics, and she was afraid that he would not uh, continue as a missionary to China. And he was explaining to her why he was pursuing his running, running and he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I don't want to ask you, 
Do you feel his pleasure in what you do every day? That's a great calling, a great sweetener for every part of your life, for you to actively seek that out and seek the Spirit to enable you to do that. Feel his pleasure. And then we're beginning to make all of life worship. As Paul says, whether you eat or drink, the most mundane, animal-like things we do, right? (laughs) Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. That means everything is a part of your worship because in it you can bring glory to his name and experience his pleasure. So God commanded, God commissioned this a cultural project, but sin corrupts this cultural project. We know that sin and violence occurred very soon after man was made. In, in Genesis 4, one brother kills another. By the time we get to chapter 4, uh, there's revenge and there's a marriage of two women oppressing them in that regard. By the time you get to chapter six, the whole world has become corrupt and God brings the flood to restart humanity, to restart the cultural project. And so this is why there has to be redemption because even though the cultural project is being carried on in this world, it is corrupted so horribly by sin and violence. We're not living for his glory. We're living for our own. Yet even in the midst of this, and this is remarkable how soon after the creation of man, this is explained and and relayed. Here in Genesis 4, it speaks of Cain bearing Enoch, and he built a city. This time it's not a king building a city. It's Enoch building a city or Cain building a city after the name of his son, Enoch. And then it gives a list of others born uh, through Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada born Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So see, right in the beginning, all kind of metalwork, music, uh, and of course, animal husbandry, and many other things were beginning to take place as the cultural project continued. But because it was so warped, and because it is vitiated by sin, and there's so much ugliness about what mankind is and what mankind does, Number three, God redeems a people for the cultural project. You had the Tower of Babel where all the nations were gathered together to disobey God and God scattered them. It's it's like the final statement in the first 11 chapters, which are like the stage on which God uh, builds the whole rest of the Bible. But right after Babel, then he narrows down to one man, that is Abraham. And to Abraham, he says, you will be a blessing to all the nations. 
So this is God's redeeming act, beginning with Abraham. And as it manifests itself in the New Testament, we have Peter's quote from Exodus, where he says the same thing Moses said to the people of Israel, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The idea of being a royal priesthood, kings and queens, yet priests, has the idea that we are conveying the glory of God in this world. We are the ones called to do that. Israel was called to do that, and Israel didn't do a great job of it. Through the redemption of Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we are given that task to be royal priests. Think of yourself as that. I'm a king, and I'm a priest in everything I do. Not just when I share the gospel, but how I do my work the excellence, the sense of God's presence with me, my gratitude, uh, my effort to work together with other people and love them, realizing I'm doing this job to love and care for people and God's earth and to glorify his name. And that's why the emphasis here, when it says you're to proclaim the excellencies of him, but you don't just proclaim the excellencies verbally, Because he says in verse 12, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you, they will glorify God on the day of visitation because they see your good deeds. And I'll tell you, this is the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament. As much as it does say about especially the apostles spreading the gospel throughout the Mediterranean basin, when it gets down to talking to the person in the pew, so to speak, the emphasis again and again, is have a godly character. Love people well. Do your job well. Live out the the gospel in your daily life. Manifest the image of God in all that you do. Be that king. Be that priest conveying the, the beauty of God in your life. That's the overwhelming emphasis in Scripture. So that you proclaim His excellencies by your good deeds. There are many things that we could say about living out uh, that, that project in our lives, but I want to jump on to the number four when it talks about uh, the, the, the fourth point, God fully restores the cultural project. Now, Romans 8 that we read is... One of the verses, one of the passages, he restores the cultural project because he sets creation free when he redeems our bodies and resurrects us and we become the kings and queens of the earth and then the earth is set free. We've talked about that in the past weeks. But I want you to notice these other passages so that you get an idea of how the scriptures are always looking to this day. Jesus 
is speaking here in Matthew 19. I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Other translations for that new world are in the regeneration or at the renewal of all things, in the restoration, when the world is made new, when everything is made new, etc. So Jesus looks to this time when all things are going to be transformed. Same thing in Acts chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that it may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this had been spoken of throughout the, the prophecies of the Old Testament. So Again, the time for restoring all things. The time comes for God to restore when everything will be restored. And then you have in the very death of Christ itself in Colossians 1. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So it's not just reconciling us to God, but that necessarily will mean ultimately all things will be reconciled to God through the reconciliation of the new humanity. This was the goal of his death. It was not just redeeming us. It was to redeem the whole of his creation. It's his world and he's not going to lose his world. He's going to recover his world. And then, great statement in Ephesians 1, just the last verse, the plan that is according to his purpose, the mystery of his will set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Where you can see from these statements that nothing is left out of God's uh, salvation. Nothing is left out of God's rescue. And we also see in scripture that the violent rule of wicked people in the world will be removed and in its place will will be put those who have humbly followed the humble Messiah. The meek shall inherit the earth, the humble, those who sacrifice themselves for others, those that are other centered like Christ. In the reading of Philippians 2, when it says that he did not hold equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out, an indication of giving himself freely to become a servant, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then it says, Therefore, he was exalted. And when it praises Christ as worthy, worthy is the lamb. Why? Because you shed your blood. That's what makes you worthy to rule the world. Because you're the humble one who served others. That's the kind of ruler we want, right? We don't get it very often that somebody really wants to serve others. But those who are believers 
can, are beginning to filter out and have for years and years and done wonderful things manifesting that kindness and that servanthood. And so our responsibility is here and now because everything is important. Everything falls under his mighty hand. And if he is Lord, it means everything is relevant. If he is Lord over everything, everything has meaning in Christ. Michael Whitmer says this, his preeminence includes rather than excludes every aspect of our existence. Rather than think that God is his primacy, that he's first in everything, means that nothing else matters. It's precisely because he is number one that everything else does matter. Yes, we put him first and central in our lives. And that means every part of our life, lives has important. Everything has value. And all the good that we do in every area of our lives is an announcement and preview of the new creation. Our fellowship as God's people when we reconcile with one another, when we are united, when we manifest mutual servanthood, counting each other as more important than ourselves as Christ did for us, all this is a manifestation of the new creation. All of our love and kindness and service, all of our work done to his glory, which we'll do forever, and different kinds of work, but that's what we will do forever. All our enjoyment of his creation is an anticipation of what is to come. It's a manifestation and a preview. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit where the glory of God's character more and more shines in your life. Wednesday night, we touched on a verse, 2 Corinthians 3, that's speaks about our being transformed into his image from glory to glory. And we were all kind of jointly scratching our heads and saying, how can what I see in my life be described as glory? But it is because the glory of God is already manifesting itself in your love to others and your sacrifice and your humility. That's the glory of King Jesus and an anticipation of the new creation where that's all that will happen, perfect humility and love for everyone, for everyone else. You're this temple where the glory of God is shining forth. The fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And this is just a sampler of the increasing glory in your life. No wonder that Isaiah 60 Verse one and following says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. It's the glory of his love. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's the language of children and, and their father. That they may see your sacrificial love and humility and joy. The prince or king 
goes out among their people many times. This would happen. Prince and pauper book. You are the kings and queens out among the people of this world. And God's glory rests upon you. And God really means for that glory to so shine out that other people will stop, will notice, will ask, and they will come by God's grace to themselves, bring glory to that same God. That's our glorious cultural project. Let us pray. Oh, Father, bless us that we may bring honor to you by everything that we do in this world. Oh, Lord, enable us to see that every part of our life, you are in it. You make it holy. And in every way, we are reflecting you, manifesting you, mediating your glorious presence in this world like prisms of light. Bless us, Lord. Give us new sense of our own dignity as human beings, our dignity as the new humanity made after the image of God, as Paul says. Oh, Lord, how glorious our calling. May we be encouraged and built up in the truth of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.